Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. Morning, church. All right, by a show of hands, who here remembers or had WWJD bracelet? All right, so for those of us who grew up around the church world and in the 90s, those WWJD bracelets were, were all the rage. You know, WWJD stands for what would Jesus do? You know, so it was meant to, as you're going through life, and going through your day and you're facing struggles or temptations or anything, you're supposed to look down at your wrist and ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Now, it was estimated that about 50 million uh, bracelets were sold in the 90s. Um, so it was, I guess, good for whoever came up with it. <laughs> but here's the thing. I, had, I wore one of those WWJD bracelets for a very short time, not, not for a long time at all. And here's the reason. See, I wasn't a big fan and the reason I wasn't a big fan was because I always found myself getting discouraged and frustrated. So, for example, if I found myself facing temptation, right, I, you look down at, at your wrist and it's like, okay, what would Jesus do? WWJD. And then what my mind would go to is it immediately go to the thought of, well, Jesus would conquer this. Of course he would. He doesn't struggle like I, like I do because he's God and I'm not. Or if I was facing some kind of disappointment, or sadness, you know, I'd ask, WWJD, and then my brain would respond to myself, and I'd think, well, of course Jesus wouldn't feel this way, the way that I feel, because he's God, and I'm not. See, no matter how many times I'd ask myself, WWJD, what would Jesus do? I'd always end up at the frustrating conclusion that Jesus didn't feel what I felt, that Jesus didn't struggle with the temptations I struggled with, that Jesus... Um, wouldn't face life the way I did because he's God and I'm not. See, but here's the thing. See, I didn't realize that that very thought, that every time I, I thought something like that, I was actually lapsing into a form of heresy. Heresy is that, that fancy word that uh, simply uh, means it's a, a term that we use for any kind of belief or any kind of practice that undermines the gospel. Right? And the gospel teaches that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So, see, in those moments, I was failing to acknowledge the full humanity of Jesus, and that was a first-century heresy known as docetism. Um, simply, they, they said that Jesus wasn't really fully human and fully God. He just seemed to be human. Um, he, he appeared to be human, but he really wasn't. 
See, and it wasn't until years later that I realized that, that this whole thinking wasn't biblical, right? So every time Jesus faced temptation, that's what I thought. Every time he faced temptation, every time he faced the struggle, anytime he was feeling certain sadness or whatever, I would think, well, Jesus would just put on his Superman costume and boom, he felt better. But that's not how it went. That's not biblical. See, those of us who grew up in church circles, we, we tend uh, to have a really solid understanding and conviction that Jesus is fully divine, like the scriptures say, right? That the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form in the person of Christ. And we're very good at arguing and defending the full deity of Christ as we should. But I think we've been so adamant about, about defending and thinking on uh, Jesus' full deity that we sometimes tend to discredit his humanity, like I was doing every time I glanced down and thought WWJD. See, but here's the thing. Scripture teaches both, both the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus. And here's how we put it in our church's statement of faith. We say this. We say, we believe that Jesus Christ is God's eternal son and has precisely the same nature, attributes, and perfections as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We further believe that he's not only true God, but true man, conceived by the Holy Spirit, showing he's true God, and born of the Virgin Mary, showing he's also true man. So it's important that we have a theology that kind of holds both of these truths in tension. And so this morning, as we bring to a close our Advent series that we're calling A Son is Given, we're going to be looking at the humanity of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. So when we started this series four weeks ago, we started in Matthew's gospel, and there we saw that Jesus is the royal son, that he's the son of David, right? That he's the promise-keeping, bondage-breaking, sinner-redeeming king. And then we looked at Mark, where we saw that Jesus is the divine son. He's God, the son, the son of God, who is in eternal relationship with God. He's the one who perfectly represents uh, the image of what God is like, and he alone is the one who provides our redemption to God. And then last week we saw in uh, John's gospel that Jesus is the mighty son, that he's the son of man. He's the judge before, before whom every single human will one day have to give an account. And today we're going to look at Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel where we see the full humanity of Jesus as an infant born as a son of Mary. After all, this is the very thing that we celebrate at Christmas. This is what we call the incarnation. Incarnation is a Latin word which simply means to be made flesh, right? So it's about how the pre-incarnate, self-existent Son of God uh, stepped down from his throne in heaven, how he poured his Godhead into flesh and blood, and how he entered our world through the doorway known as Bethlehem. And here's the thing about the incarnation. See, in all of its theological mystery and all of its uh, intellectual complexity, the reason behind the incarnation is actually quite simple. So you could boil it down to the pure, unadulterated, unreserved love of God. The incarnation is God's loudest declaration of love. In the incarnation, we learn about the compassion of Jesus. In the incarnation, we see the deep empathy that Jesus has for sinners like us. In the incarnation, we see the perfect example of selfless servanthood. And in the incarnation, we, we learn how to overcome temptation the way Jesus did. And ultimately, without the incarnation, there would be no salvation. 
right? That's ultimately why Jesus came, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world, say it with me if you know it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. See, the incarnation is God's loudest declaration of love. So we're going to see three bold statements that God makes through the incarnation. Okay, so the first bold statement that streaks across the pages of Luke's gospel is this. No one knows what you're going through better than Jesus. There is no other person who understands you the way Jesus does. There's no other person who knows your deepest needs. There's no other person who understands your worst fears or your greatest dreams or all of the, the hurt you've gone through or all of the rejection that you've faced or all the trials that you've suffered through. No one knows what you're going through better than Jesus does. Now Luke's gospel shows us first that Jesus understands our greatest struggles. Jesus understands our greatest struggles. Right with the, the story of, of his birth, we, we see Jesus understands the struggle of poverty. It's what he was born into in Luke chapter 2. First seven verses, let's look there. It says this, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. See, we might expect a king to come to us with horses and chariots and great fanfare. Right? We would expect some kind of elaborate royal celebration. Or we would think at least that God's decision to inhabit the earth would have come through us, him coming through a, a powerful family, a popular family, a prestigious family, or a privileged family. Instead, God decided to come to us as a weak, rejected child born into poverty. See, Joseph and his pregnant wife had to make a week-long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So uh, Mary was forced to give birth to her son, to Jesus, in a cold, dark cutout of a cave amongst the stench of barn animals. And then after she gave birth, Mary wrapped up Jesus, as it says, in swaddling cloths. And she used, for his crib, a feeding trough that was meant for slobbering animals. And see, the first bed for the Son of God wasn't a royal cradle. It was a common crib used to hold scraps of food for barn animals. If anyone understands the struggle of being born into poverty, it's Jesus. Even as an adult, Jesus understood poverty. After all, the taxes were so extravagant in Jesus' day that most people were in poverty. See, no one of us have ever been hammered with higher taxes than Jesus who lived under that kind of oppressive and corrupt Roman government and with the most excessive and unjust tax code in existence. Jesus didn't have a house to his name. His, his parents weren't wealthy. There was no welfare system, right? So that's why he says in Luke 9, 58, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. 
So Jesus understands the struggle of poverty. Jesus also understands the, the, the struggle of rejection. Another thing that so many of us have experienced. See, just as he was beginning his public ministry when he was 30 years old, he goes back to Nazareth, to where he grew up. And listen to what Luke 4.16 says. He says, And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. So he reads some scripture, he, he starts preaching, he hints to them that uh, he's the one that the prophets of old uh, foretold of, and then uh, all of a sudden they say, hey, wait a minute, isn't this that Jesus, that son of the carpenter Joseph from around town? That's all this guy is. And then you read in Luke 4, 28 to 30, it says, when, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. See, Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by the people of his own hometown, to be rejected and be ridiculed by those who are in uh, religious and, and spiritual and political authority. Jesus also understands the struggle of loneliness. Right? No one has ever felt more alone than Jesus being deserted by his closest friends that night of his betrayal when he needed them the most and he asked them to stay up and pray with him. Or when Peter, one of his closest friends, denied even knowing who Jesus was. Jesus understands betrayal. No one has ever felt more betrayed than Jesus being lured by a friend who fell prisoner to the love of money and snitched on his own leader and his own teacher and his own rabbi for the pitiful price of 30 pieces of silver. Jesus understands your greatest struggles. He understands poverty. He understands rejection. He understands loneliness. He understands betrayal. He understands abandonment. And Jesus also understands your greatest pains. Not only your greatest struggles, but also your greatest pain. See, Jesus experienced the entire range of pain, from, from emotional pain, physical pain, even spiritual pain, right? So on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus suffered a tremendous emotional torment. He went out late to pray because he knew what was bound to happen. He knew the scriptures. He knew who he was and what he was called to do. And he knew his path that laid ahead about the sacrifice and suffering that he had to go through as the Messiah. And he experienced all of this with the full range of human emotions. Listen to what Luke 22 says, starting in verse 42. Jesus was praying in the garden and he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. See, so great is his emotional torment that Jesus starts sweating blood. Now, this was likely a case of, of what's called uh, hematidrosis, and it's when someone's under such great stress that the tiny capillaries in their sweat glands uh, actually burst and uh, mingles with the sweat that's coming down. So no one has ever experienced emotional torment like Jesus has. He didn't just suffer emotional torment, though. He also suffered physical torture. Luke, listen to what Luke 22 says a little later. It says, Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And then, just before the crucifixion, the Romans would have flogged Jesus, bringing his body to a bloody pulp. 
Jesus knows pain. He understands emotional torment. He understands physical torture. And Jesus also knows spiritual pain. See, when Jesus was, was hanging on the cross, minutes before he breathed his last human breath, we see him suffering spiritual turmoil. Listen to what, uh, how Mark puts it. Mark says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No one has ever felt more forsaken than Jesus being burdened with the unbearably heavy weight of sin and being broken by the Father's holy rejection. This was Jesus' sharpest grief. This is what, what Spurgeon called the stroke that has cut him to the quick. So for the very first time, very first time from his eternal past, the son experiences the crushing pain of his father's righteous wrath and is condemned to drink the cup of heaven's fury. All because of his deep love for us. So Jesus understands the greatest struggles we will ever face in life. Jesus understands deeply the greatest pains any of us will ever go through. And Jesus also understands our greatest temptations. That's the third thing we see here. Jesus understands our greatest temptations. So immediately following his baptism, you see Jesus fasting. He goes into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And then he experiences his greatest temptations in Luke 4, the first two verses say, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. See, so Satan, Satan knows what's at stake now with Jesus on the scene, so he's going to do everything he can uh, to relentlessly tempt him. And that's what he does. He tempts Jesus. He waits until Jesus is weak. He waits until he's hungry, and he tries to get Jesus off of the Father's agenda and th to thinking about himself. And he tempts Jesus with food. He tempts Jesus with, with political and, and religious power. He tempts him with pride. He tempts him with all of it. But Jesus relentlessly resisted the onslaught of those temptations. How? You see him praying. You see him quoting scripture that he clearly meditated on and memorized. And you see him depending on the Spirit to empower him. In his book, a theological reflections on the humanity of Christ. Listen to the way Dr. Bruce Ware puts it. He says this. He said, Jesus did not sin, not because he relied on the supernatural power of his divine nature or because his divine nature overpowered his human nature, keeping him from sinning. Jesus did not sin because he utilized all of the resources given to him in his humanity. He loved and meditated on God's word. He prayed to his father. He trusted in the wisdom and rightness of his father's will and word. And very significantly, he relied on the supernatural power of the spirit to strengthen him to do all that he was called upon to do. Which means that the same Resources available to Jesus to resist temptation are the same resources that he makes available to you and me today. We have access to God to pray to him. We have the completed canon of scripture to meditate on, to memorize, to study. And we're called to walk in full dependence on the indwelling spirit. And Jesus even promises to help us. 
Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18 say this. It says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be make like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, Jesus was tempted just as we are, but he perfectly withstood the full pressure and the full presence of every single temptation without ever once sinning. And now, Christ sits ready, next to the Father, ready to help us in our time of need, ready to help us in overcoming temptation. Jesus knows what it's like to walk in our shoes, and he wants to empower us with his life so he could do for us what's impossible for us to do apart from him. So the next time you're tempted with something beyond your control, ask him for help. Go to God's word and trust in the Holy Spirit to help you. You're never alone in your struggles. You're never alone in your pain. You're never alone in any of your temptations. No one knows what you're going through better than Jesus. Now, a second bold statement that, uh, the, about the incarnation that streaks up across the pages of, gospel, of uh, the Gospel of Luke is this. No one lived a life worth following greater than Jesus. No one lived a life worth following greater than Jesus. See, Jesus not only understands us and understands everything that we could possibly experience as a human, he also showed us the best way to live life to the fullest and how we could follow in his footsteps. So here's the first thing Jesus set the example for. First, Jesus set the example of perfect submission. He set the example of what it looks like to submit perfectly. See, Scripture calls on us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And from his earliest years, Jesus can be seen uh, with that attitude of perfect submission. When he was 12 years old, Jesus went to the temple with his parents uh, during uh, Passover. His parents leave. They get a day into their journey, and they realize, wait, Jesus isn't with us. Where is he? So they go back to Jerusalem. So three days after he went missing, they find Jesus as a 12-year-old in the temple. And he's engaged in dialogue with the teachers in the temple. He's asking them questions, and they're asking him questions, and he's answering their questions. And Mary and Joseph see him. They're astonished and amazed. The religious teachers there are astonished and amazed. And then, as a good mom, Mary says, all right, time to go. And then we, you see in Luke 2, it says, and he went down with them, and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus was submissive to his human parents, right? the eternal son of God putting himself under the authority of human parents. And Jesus was also submissive to the heavenly father. Right? Everything he did in life was in perfect obedience uh, to the Father, even up until the very end. Now, we looked at this before, but look again at Luke chapter 22, when Jesus was praying in the garden. Verse 42, he's saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Time 
and again, we see that every moment that Jesus lived, every breath that Jesus took was in doing the will of the Father. The way First Peter says about Jesus, says he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly, meaning God, the Father. So Jesus set the example of perfect submission. Jesus also set the example of perfect spirituality. Jesus set the example of perfect spirituality. Now, by perfect spirituality, I'm speaking about the fact that Jesus lived every single moment of his life in dependence on the indwelling Holy Spirit, right? The same way scripture tells us that if we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And Jesus did this perfectly. He walked in the spirit perfectly. Just after his temptation in the wilderness, where we saw how much uh, Jesus relied on prayer and how much he relied on the word of God, here's the report that Luke gives us in verse 14. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. country. See, the Holy Spirit was the divine power by which Jesus overcame his human limitations. The Holy Spirit was the divine power that enabled Jesus to rise above his own human weaknesses. And the Holy Spirit was the divine power that helped Jesus win out over his human mortality. Jesus lived his life fundamentally as a man. So he relied on the Spirit to provide power. He relied on the Spirit to provide grace, to provide wisdom, to provide uh, uh, direction, to provide all the enablement that he needed to day by day accomplish everything that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And in doing this, Jesus set the perfect example for us, how God wants us to live our Christian lives in full dependence on all the resources that he makes available to us by the Holy Spirit. And then you could also see Jesus's perfect spirituality in the way that he practiced what we would call spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, right? We see Jesus engaged in Bible study when he's uh, talking with the teachers in the temple when he was 12 years old. Uh, you, see, um, you also see Jesus being very fluent in scriptures, being able to answer their questions and, and ask questions. Um, and that would have been a result of his regular study of God's word. Um, and we saw his commitment to periods of fasting, like he did right before the temptations in the wilderness. And then you see Jesus made it a habit of regularly going to synagogue. So Jesus had all these spiritual disciplines. And then Luke 5 sheds light onto another aspect of Jesus's spiritual practices. Luke 5, 16, it says, but he, Jesus, would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Over 25 times in the gospel, over 25 times in the gospel, we see Jesus praying. He prioritized prayer. He made a habit of praying. All of the habits and practices of Jesus set an example for us to follow. So are our lives prioritized by our pursuit of God. Do we prioritize prayer on our calendars? Do we prioritize scripture reading on our calendars? Do we prioritize Bible study on our calendars? What do we do with our daily schedules? Is God a priority? If not, ask Jesus to help you. He wants to. He set the perfect examples of submission, the perfect example of spirituality, and three, Jesus set the perfect example of servanthood. 
He set the example of perfect servanthood. See, the Gospels show us how deeply Jesus cared for us, how deeply Jesus cared for others, for the humans he came to save, how much compassion he had on them, how much love he had on them, the way he healed the sick, the way he cast out demons, the way he restored sight to the blind, the way he washed the feet of his disciples, the way he even raised a little girl from the dead. But I can't think of a more perfect example of Jesus's servanthood uh, than the very fact of his incarnation, right? That Jesus condescended from the highest heights of glory to the lowest lows of humanity. This is how Philippians 2 says it. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says it this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. See, this passage teaches us that that Christ being fully God and possessing the very nature of God and being fully equal to God in every single respect, he didn't insist on, on holding on to all of the privileges and benefits of his position of equality with God the Father. Instead, he came to earth as a full man fully as a man. He willingly decided from eternity past that this was the way it was going to be, that he would be the one to come and to crush the head of the serpent. So in the incarnation, uh, Christ didn't stop being God. He didn't give up being God. Instead, he didn't grasp onto his privileged position and prerogatives that uh, came with being fully God. And to what end? Why did he do that? Well, it was in order to fulfill his calling to become a man who serves humanity with his greatest act of sacrifice on the cross. See, what the perfect servanthood of Jesus teaches us is that we should imitate him in giving ourselves to others, in giving ourselves to others as their servants. We're called to look to his example uh, to inform us in ways in which we can, by his enabling grace, seek to serve those around us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our, our workplaces, our, our, wherever it is. God wants you to serve those around you. See, we're not, despite what the world says, we're not most human in our heroic moments. We're not most human in our intellect. We're not most human in our will to power. Instead, we're most human in our loving, humble, self-sacrificial service to others, just like Jesus, who was the perfect human. See, no one knows what you're going through better than Jesus does. He understands your greatest struggles. He understands your greatest pains. He understands your greatest temptations. And no one lived a life worth following greater than Jesus. He set the example of perfect submission. He set the example of what it looks like to have perfect spirituality. And he set the example of perfect servanthood. Well, then there's a third bold statement about the incarnation that streaks across the life of Jesus, and it's this. No one can meet your ultimate need other than Jesus. No one can meet your ultimate need other than Jesus. So what is our ultimate need? Well, our ultimate need is for a Savior who would redeem us, 
right? Scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And for the wages of sin, the penalty of sin is death. So we're destined for nothing more than eternal separation from the Father. But remember that the incarnation is God's loudest declaration of love. I love the way Galatians 4 says, it says, but when the fullness of time had come, when it was perfect, perfectly timed according to God's plan, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's what Jesus accomplished in his death and his resurrection. First, he took our sinful rebellion and he gave us his sinless righteousness. He takes our sinful rebellion and he gives us his sinless righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for our sake, so because of his great love for us, God made the one who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. Meaning the father charged his own son with our sin and guilt. Why? So that by faith in Christ, he would secure for us the forgiveness we desperately need and that he would impute to us the perfect righteousness of the Son as a result of trusting in what Jesus did for us, his sacrifice for us and his resurrection from the grave. God makes us new creatures because just a, a few verses before this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a? Sounds good. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, Jesus takes our sinful rebellion and he presents us before the Father with his perfect righteousness. And second, Jesus took our rightful death and he gave us his resurrected life. Jesus took our rightful death and gave us his resurrected life. See, the, the death that Jesus died was the death that belonged to you and to me. It's for this very reason that the eternal son had to clothe himself with our humanity so he could be our perfect substitute. This is how the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews chapter 2. He says, Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise partook of the same things, meaning the son took on flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So Jesus had to be fully human to die for us and to break the power of death because only a human could experience death, right? One who's fully God but not fully human can't die. In verse 15, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, meaning fully human, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Jesus is our great high priest who paid for our sins and who died our death. And this very moment, he's sitting next to the Father, mediating and interceding on our behalf. Amen. And Romans 5 then shows us that God's abundant grace through Christ is the very best gift we could ever receive. Romans 5 17. 
It says, for if because of one man's trespass, speaking of the, the sin of the historical Adam, right, our common ancestor, for if because of Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, right, it was Adam's sin that initiated the fall of the human race, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. See, the God of Bethlehem is the God of Golgotha. They go hand in hand. I love the way Dr. William Willimon puts it in his book on the Incarnation. He says this, In Jesus Christ, God said a divine, dramatic, loving yes to us. The God of the cross also said a resounding, decisive no to how we were living and to what we made of the world. Christ loved us enough to become one with us as we are, but Christ loved us enough not to leave us as we are. He became incarnate for us and our salvation, not simply to affirm our humanity or to condone our continued sin. See, God's greatest gift to us is the gift of himself. It's a gift of new life. It's a gift of a new righteousness. It's a gift of a new power. It's a gift of new affections. It's a gift of a new community, a new destiny, and an entirely new purpose for living. Our greatest need is a Savior, and God, in his great love for us, gave us exactly what we needed. And in Christ, he continues to give us all that we will ever need to reign in life. No one can meet our greatest need other than Jesus. So church, as you go into the week ahead, go into the week ahead with joy. Joy that comes from knowing the full extent of what God did on the, in the incarnation. Because the incarnation is God's loudest declaration of love. The eternal Son of God went from the throne of heaven to a feeding trough. The one who stretched out the great expanse of the universe became a human embryo. The omniscient, omnipotent God appeared on the scene of earth as a helpless human baby. He came into the muck and mire of our world so he could sympathize with us when we struggle in that muck and mire and so he could pull us out of that mess. And as a result, no one knows what you're going through better than Jesus does. No one lived a life worth following greater than Jesus and no one can meet your ultimate need other than Jesus. So whatever your struggle might be this Christmas season, whether it's poverty, pain, sickness, fractured relationships, loneliness, temptations, whatever it may be, you are not alone. Jesus understands you, he walks with you, and he gives you himself to help you. Ask him to help you. Seek him, and you will find him. He loves you. Would you stand as I close us with the prayer and as we get ready to sing a closing song of worship? Father, we are so grateful, so grateful for this beautiful mystery called the incarnation. Thank you, Jesus, from stepping down from your rightful place in heaven to become one of us, a creator becoming the created. To do for us what we can never do for ourselves. To redeem us, 
to forgive us, to save us, to pay our penalty of sin and death for us. Lord, for anyone in this room who has not made that decision to trust you, to trust in what the Lord Jesus has done, Lord, I pray that even in these moments, the cry of their heart, the prayer and pleading of their heart would simply be, save me, Lord Jesus, for I am a sinner in need of mercy. That I believe who you are, that you are the fully God, fully human, eternal son who loved me and gave himself for me and who was resurrected to life three days later and that by faith in him, I have that new life. Lord, we thank you for that truth. We thank you for the hope that is ours. And Lord, just as many in the first century were waiting, waiting for the arrival of Jesus, Lord, so we wait in hopeful anticipation for his second coming, for his second arrival. Lord, let us live with faith and joy and hope and peace until that day comes. Lord, let us tell others about the marvelous work of Jesus on our behalf. We thank you so much, Father, for loving us. And it's in Jesus' mighty name, all God's children said, amen.